you don't mind, turn your Bibles, please. We have been out of Genesis for a while due to various things, but now we're back. This is next to the last chapter in which we find Abraham's life spelled out, the narrative of his life. And this is the last really significant thing that Abraham has done.
that same Father is so full of goodness that it binds these things together for the good of That's sovereignty. We use the word sovereignty a lot. Sovereignty is not a bad word. Sovereignty is rightly understood. It's a good word. But I think providence has a shade of meaning to it that perhaps makes sovereignty a bit more personal. Because if we merely speak of one who is sovereign, if we're not careful to define our terms carefully and to explain ourselves, we may give people the idea that there's just this deity up in heaven who has unlimited power, and when he chooses to intervene, it, it comes to pass because nothing can stop his will, but it might be for the good of his people, and maybe then it might not. But providence carries with it a shade of meaning that that God who is powerful, that God who knows the end from the beginning, also does all things for the good of his people. That's One of my favorite movies is Signed by M. Night Shyamalan. Probably a lot of you have seen that. Most of the movies after that were pretty poor, but that was a good one. One of the really beautiful things about that movie is even though it's not coming necessarily from a Judeo-Christian point of view, it really captures the idea of the idea that there's this deity up there somewhere, and there's all these people below that have to trust him, otherwise they're in deep trouble. So the basic plot of the movie is you have this guy who is former director, maybe an Anglican church or something like that. His wife dies in a tragic accident, and it completely shatters his faith. And it turns his back on God. Because after all, here's a guy doing God's work, and God seemingly doesn't care about him, and lets this arbitrary thing happen, and it ruins his life. So he goes from being a sort of faithful secretary in town, helping people to just being a farmer. goes on, and plot thickens and develops, and it turns out that there's an alien invasion take over the entire world. And so this just further angers him because he has two little children and a brother who lives with him, and everything seems to be coming undone, and, and everything's just going to be ruined. There's a point in the movie where things are getting worse and worse, and they don't know when the aliens are going to attack, and they feel very vulnerable and helpless, that his brother looks at him, and basically he wants his, his brother to do something encourage him and say, hey, everything's going to be okay. And after a series of minutes of dialogue, he looks at his brother, that's the priest does, he looks at his brother and he says, no one is watching out for us. We are all alone. That's the point that he had gotten to in the first place. It's the bottoming out of his faith. No one is watching out for us. We are all alone. Now, if you know the people. 
let us read now together God's word. This is the lengthiest passage of scripture I think we have ever read in eight years plus of our church. But I told you at the very beginning we're going to read every verse of what Peter's going to confess in. So I want you to listen as we go to the story. A story of power. And Moses wrote this story down to encourage his faith as people. Maybe you can imagine yourself like an Israelite gathered around a campfire. Grandpa pulls out the old story and tells his people that that's what we're like. We're gathering around, hearing the stories of God and how he providentially encouraged our faith. So this is God's word. Now Abraham was old, well advanced in years. And the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. And Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, who had charge of all that he had, put your hand under my thigh. I will make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of the earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of Canaan, among whom I dwell, but will go to my country and to my kindred and take a wife for my son Isaac. The servant said to him, Perhaps the woman may not be willing to follow me to this land. Must I then take your son back to the land from which he came? Abraham said to him, See to it that you do not take my son back there. The Lord, the God of heaven, took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred who spoke to me and swore to me, to your offspring I will give this land. He will send his angel before you and you shall take a wife for my son from him. But if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you will be free from his oath of mine. Only you must not take my son back there. So the servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham's master and swore to him concerning this then the servant took ten of his master's camels and departed, taking all sorts of choice gifts from his master, and he arose and went to Mesopotamia, to the city of David. And he made the camels kneel down outside the city by the well of water at the time of noon, the time when women go out to draw water. And he said, O Lord God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show steadfast love to my master Abraham. Behold, I am standing by the spring of water. And the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. But the young woman to whom I shall say, Please let down your jar that I may drink, and who shall say, Drink, and I will water your camels. Let her be the one whom you have appointed for your servant Isaac. By this I shall know that you have shown steadfast love to my master. Before he had finished speaking, behold, Rebekah, who was born to Bethuel, the son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother, came out with her water jar on her shoulder. The young woman was very attractive in appearance, a maiden whom no man had known. She went down to the spring and filled her jar and came up. Then the servant ran to meet her and said, Please give me a little water to drink from your jar. She said, Drink, my lord. And she quickly let down her jar upon her hand and gave him a drink. When she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I will draw water for your camels also until they had finished drinking. So she quickly entered her jar at the trough and ran against the well to draw water, and she drew her own skin. The man gazed at her in silence to learn whether the Lord had talked with his servant or not. When the camels had finished drinking, the man took a gold ring weighing a half shekel and two bracelets for her arms weighing ten gold shekels, and said, Please tell me whose daughter you are. Is there room in your father's house for us to spend the night? She said to him, I am the daughter of Bethuel, the son of Milcom, whom she bore to Nahor. She added, We have plenty of both straw and water and room to spend the 
night. The man bowed his head and worshipped the Lord, and said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his steadfast love and his faithfulness toward my master. As for me, the Lord has led me in the way to the house of my master's kinsman. Then the young woman ran and told her mother's household about these things. Rebecca had a brother whose name was Laban. Laban ran out toward the man at the spring. As soon as he saw the ring and the bracelets on his sister's arm and heard the words of Rebekah his sister, thus the man spoke to him, he went to the man. Behold, he was standing by the table at the spring. He said, Come in, O blessed of the Lord. Why do you stand outside? For I have prepared the house and a place for the camels. So the man came to the house and harnessed the camels and gave straw and fodder to the camels. And gave straw and fodder to the camels. And there was water to wash his feet and the feet of the men who were with him. And food was set before him to eat, but he said, I will not eat until I have said what I have to say. He said, Speak on. So he said, I am Abraham's servant. The Lord has greatly blessed my master, and he has become great. He has given him flocks and herds, silver and gold, male servants and female servants, camels and donkeys. And Sarah, the master's wife, bore a son to my master when she was old, and to him he has given all that he has. My master made me swear, saying, you shall not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites in whom I may dwell, but you shall go to my father's house and to my clan and take a wife for my son. I said to my master, Perhaps the woman will not follow me. But he said to me, The Lord for whom I have walked will send an angel with me and prosper the Lord. You shall take a wife for my son from my clan and from my father's house. Then you will be free from my oath when you come to my clan. And if they will not give her to you, came today to the spring and said, O Lord, the God of my master Abraham, if now you are prospering the way that I go, behold, I am standing by the spring of water. But the virgin who comes out to draw water to whom I shall say, Please give me a little water to start a drink. And it will say to me, Drink, and I will draw for your camels also. Let her be the woman whom the Lord has appointed for my master's son. Before I had finished speaking in my heart, behold, Rebecca came out with her water drawn on her shoulder, and she went down to the spring I said to her, please let me drink. She quickly let down her jar from her shoulder and said, drink, and I will give your camel's drink also. So I drank, and she gave the camel's drink also. And I asked her, whose daughter are you? She said, the daughter of Bethuel, Nahor's son, whom Milcah bore to him. So I put the ring on her nose and the bracelets on her arms. Then I bowed my head and worshipped the Lord and blessed the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who had led me by the right way to take the daughter of my master's kinsman for her son. Now then, you are going to show steadfast love and faithfulness to my master. Tell me, and if not, tell me, that I may turn to the right hand or to the left. Then Laban and Bethuel answered and said, The thing has come from the Lord. We cannot speak to you bad or good. Behold, Rebekah is before you. Take her and go, and let her be the wife of your master's son, as the Lord has spoken. Then Abraham's servant heard their words. He bowed himself to the earth before the Lord, and the servant brought out jewelry of silver and of gold and garments and gave them to Rebekah. He also gave to her brother and to her mother costly garments. And he and the men who were with him ate and drank and they spent the night there. When he arose in the morning, he said, Send me away to my master. Her brother and her mother said, Let the young woman remain with us a while, at least ten days. After that she may go. But he said to them, Do not delay me, since the Lord has prospered my way. Send me away that I may go to my master. They said, Let us call the young woman and ask her. They called her back and said to her, Will you go with this man? She said, I will go. 
So they sent away Rebekah, their sister, and her nurse, and Abraham's servant and his men. And they blessed Rebekah and said to her, Our sister, may you become thousands of ten thousands, and may your offspring possess the gates of those who hate you. So Rebekah and her young women arose and rode on the camels and followed the man. Thus the servant of Rebekah went his way. Now Isaac had returned from Bear the Highway, and was dwelling in the Negev. And Isaac went out to meditate in the fields of Rebekah. And he lifted up his eyes and saw, and behold, there were camels coming. And Rebekah lifted up her eyes, and when she saw Isaac, she dismounted from the camel and said to the servant, Who is that man walking in the fields of Edom? The servant said, It is my master. So she took her veil and covered herself. And the servant told Isaac all the things that she had done. And Isaac brought her into the tent, there his mother, and took Rebekah, and she became his wife. And he loved her. Isaac was comforted after his wife. So we are going to continue on with the story of Abraham, and specifically now toward the end of Abraham's life. We are remembering, as we've already said today, that Israel desperately needed to hear that there was a providential God watching out for them. And the reality is, we were really not that time to time, even though intellectually, cognitively, we believe there's a powerful God out there who sees all things and can control all things, and maybe he does these things for our good, we doubt. We kind of help the doubt. That's, that's who we are. We're going to move in and out of periods of confidence and doubt, of elation and frustration, of happiness and sadness. That is our lot in life. Each new day confronts us with challenges. We trust this Lord who sees all things and knows all things and controls all things. And, oh, by the way, does those things for our good. Will we trust him? One of the most basic questions that Abraham had to have been thinking about at this point is, when was the last time God failed you? And Abraham, as he started speaking to his servant, had to come to the conclusion, you know, I don't remember when that was. God, God has not failed me. And I want us to get to the point as a people that even on the darkest days, days when depression is thick and heavy, days when doubts are many, days when the evidence is to the contrary. In other words, we know that God is in control of all things, but sometimes it doesn't seem like it. I want us, like Abraham on those days, to ask ourselves, has God failed you? In fact, has he failed me? And I hope that this kind of confidence in God's providence engenders faith in us. The first thing I want us to see today is that the Lord's faithful providence grounds that's who Abraham was by this point. He was a man that, by and large, was grounded in his confidence. It wasn't because Abraham was strong. We've taken our time to go through Abraham's life up to this point. And frankly, we've seen that he's a screwed up lot. That a lot of the times when we think that he should have remembered God's faithfulness and banked on that, that his confidence should have been grounded by this point, if you look at Abraham and you think, well, he just made a really wretched decision. You should know better, Abraham. 
large, had a grounded conscience. Abraham had gone through his life, much like a crucible, learning how weak he was and how strong God was. And after all, at the end of the day, isn't that what our Savior is? Isn't that what our life is? It's like a crucible. The impurities are being exposed, and painfully, they are being that though we learn from God's word over and over, and though we learn from our own stories over and over, that we are not strong, we are not capable, we are not able on our own to make life work in any sort of meaningful and helpful way, but yet we still try so hard. You see, the first sin, the sin that cropped up in the garden, the sin that we call pride, a tree, if you will. And pride has sent its roots deep down into every part of us. Into our psyche, into our hearts, into our affections, into our willpower. And it sends its poisonous roots and the disease that ensues from that. And it takes a lifetime to suck that poison out. Really, the only thing, the only one who can suck that poison out and set us on our feet and allow us to worship as He designed us to do so. And so, the crucible of life, my friends, is painful and it is difficult. And Abraham knows that. But here at the end of his life, he says to his servant, who at this point is unnamed, Listen, you've got to watch out for the welfare of my. God has called us out of paganism. He brought us to this land. He's going to plant us here. He's going to grow us into a nation. He made us all those promises. But we have to keep our end of the bargain. God is sovereign. God is, God is engineering all these things providentially. But he has called us to be faithful. So we must remain pure. We must be the kind of people that, that seek after his heart. Abraham knew the character of Canaan. The Canaanites were a desperate, wicked people. In fact, as we move on the story of Israel once they enter into Canaan, you see they were just desperate even. The reality is Abraham knew how wicked he himself was. But he knew he had been changed, and even to this point in his life, was being changed. And he did not want to go back. He was staking his claim. This God who had called him out of pagan living would be faithful to him and to his offspring. And so he says to his servants, listen, the Canaanites are awful. We can't intermarry with them. So go back to my homeland. And as far as we know about the homeland of Abraham, these people were not worshippers of the one true God. We know that from Abraham's past as well as the future with Jacob who already spent some time there with with his uncle Laban. These were not people that were sold out to the one true God. But apparently they weren't as bad as the Canaanites. That's about as best as we can do with this text. But Abraham looked at the people around him and said, these people are so wicked, there's no way this will work. So perhaps, if you go back to my homeland, maybe they will have heard of the God that I serve. Maybe they're better off than the ones here, and I want you to go get a wife from there. So they go through this ancient Near Eastern ritual where the servant has to Put his hand under the thigh of Abraham, 
saying, listen, you got to follow your end of the bargain. I'm asking you to follow what you do in the servant's life. The servant has doubts. It's going to take him around a month or so to get to this place. And for him, it seems like sort of a futile journey, and he doesn't know that God's going to come through. But Abraham is confident, and he says to him, listen, God's going to come through. In fact, he's going to send an angel before you. That is to say, providentially, God is already superintending things before you. Abraham had learned by this point in his life to do lots of fire with God's favorite problem. And so he asked the servant to trust him because he trusted God. Here you are at the end of Abraham's life. And Abraham seemingly against the odds trusting God. Paul would say something similar in 2 Corinthians 4. Not long before he died, his son
Verse 21, and he's watching. And he's watching her and wondering. 
Abraham says you come through it. And I've seen that again and again in my master's life. But now I'm putting it all on the line. Will you come through? It's like this expected gate watching things unfold. And sure enough, everything seems to be coming to pass according to his prayer. In fact, we know from the text that, that she was already coming out while the guy was praying. In other words, God had already set this thing in motion. So was God using the prayer of the servant to bring things to pass? Yes. But he was also setting this, up, this guy up to receive it by faith. And here's what I mean. God has foreordained things way before we were ever born. Not just the big details of life, but the small details of life. And the mystery of providence is that somehow our prayers are used by God to bring those things that he has planned to pass. But I think maybe not quite to the point that our prayers affect God's hand, but, but also to a, a large degree, our prayers prepare us to receive what he has planned. So I'm saying two things. Our prayers move God's hand to some degree. That doesn't mean he's not providential. It just means that he works through our prayers as a means. But nearly as important, what prayer does is it sets us up to recognize what he's done. So as we pray for things, when he does it, we recognize that he's the one who's done it. And that not only allows us to give him thanks for doing it, it also allows us to trust him for the future. So prayer moves and prayer receives. Prayer encourages God to move and bring about his sovereign plans. And prayer also helps me to receive those sovereign plans as something good for my life. And because he had prayed and because God was moving, he could see that and he thanked God. The Lord's faithful providence not only grounds our guy had seen God move in the past on behalf of his master, and now he steps out in obedience and does what he said he would do. And we're the same today. Not only do we need our confidence grounded in God's faithful providence, God's faithful providence allows us and encourages our obedience. It's hard to do hard things. Frankly, it's often hard to do the easiest Especially when it goes against the things that sometimes we idolatrous, idolatrously can happen, right? Idolatrously desire. We don't always want to do the things that God wants us to do. But God's faithful promise providence encourages that kind of obedience. You see, when it really comes down to it, we still struggle with being master. We still struggle with being Lord. That's why sin can be so enticing. We know very often the things that God does not want us to do or the things that he does want us to do, but we struggle with them as we charge. One of the reasons for that is because we falsely think that we can make ourselves happy on our own ends. That's why sin often seems so very tempting. But following God's way allows us to believe that, after all, you're the only one who can ultimately make me happy. And his providence in the past sets me up now to obey him. At the end of the day, worship and obedience are not exactly synonyms, but they certainly can go together. That is to say, if I'm going to be a worshiper of God, I must do the things that he wants me to do. And I must avoid the things that he wants me to do. 
that he has shown himself faithful in the past to me. That gives me confidence that I can obey him now to know that everything will work out. It also gives me confidence when obedience is so very difficult. What I mean by that is sometimes it's hard to do the things he calls us to. But his providence gives us encouragement that he will give us grace to obey when it gets hard. Perhaps God is calling you to something even now. You've been wrestling with this over the past couple of weeks. And you know to go forward in that kind of obedience is going to be very, very difficult. You know it's going to cost you something, and you're not quite sure if you can actually follow it. But God is faithful to providence, his power, his love, his attentiveness to you gives you confidence that you can actually follow it. In the mundane days, whenever we're just called to obey in the normal ways, his providence assures us that he will always bring joy to his people, even when it just seems like the odds are stacked against him. God's providence gives us confidence to help with our obedience. And thirdly, I think we learn from this text that the Lord's faithful providence assures us of his obedience. What happens to this servant? Well, Laban comes out and invites him in, and they start negotiating on how things went back in the ancient world. He tells Laban, all the things that happened to him, to his, to his master. How God has prospered his master. How his master wants a wife for his son at his expense. And they go back and forth a bit. He tells Laban the story. He's kind of a, a good witness. You see, sometimes as we share our faith with other people, we go directly to the gospel itself. There is one who took on flesh, who took your place, who suffered for you, took God's wrath on himself when he did not deserve it. He was raised from the grave and if you will trust him, he will grant you his righteousness and will take you to live with him for forever. That's the kind of direct gospel that we hear. But sometimes one of the best things that we can do as we share our faith with other people is tell them our story. How God has changed us. How, how God has proven himself faithful. Because after all, we're not the only ones asking ourselves is there really anyone watching out for us? And so the servant tells his story, and Laban and the family seem to listen with rapt attention. And by the end of the servant relaying his story to Laban and to the family, they're transfixed. They believe. And even if they are not worshipers exclusively of the one true God, they can see the hand of the Lord moving here, both in the way that the Lord had prospered Abraham and also in the way that the Lord had answered the servant's prayer. And so what do they say? They say, make it happen. Now, in the ancient Near Eastern customs, there had to be some, some transferal of goods. So Rebecca had already received some of these things. She had a nose ring. So it's a cultural thing back then. If you want to translate that today, go ahead. But that was kind of the servant's way of saying, listen, I'm going to give you lots of nice stuff now, and this is my way of saying to you, I think you're going to favor me in this place to be the wife of my master's son. But, but also know that, that these symbols, these, these ornaments, are ways of, of sort of marking you. So whenever the family agrees, he gives her even more stuff, and not only that, he gives the family stuff. And it's his way of saying, with sort of uh, great love and care and concern for them, here are things for my master to, to bless you, and to thank you for showing me this. But at the end of the day, Rebecca's the one who has to agree. 
family agrees with this, but, but Rebecca has to, to agree to this. Against all odds, seemingly, she does. Now, now remember, as far as we know, like the servant didn't have like a sketch of him. He, he didn't like pull it out and say, my master's son is a really good listener. Like, as far as we know, he didn't um, have like some private time with her and, and talk about Isaac's character. Isaac's really sweet. historic two armies on that they weren't matching up you know, areas of compatibility and so forth. As far as we know, and the narrative is, is brief, and maybe there was more said than we have here written down, she agrees to go side unseen without knowing him. Now you might sort of chalk this up to a woman just wanting to go out and have a little bit of adventure, but this is more than that. She's leading her kindred way behind, and she's setting out to, to people who, who don't believe exactly like she believes. She's setting out to go to, to people she's never seen before, maybe, maybe heard some about that and never met. And this is going to be her life. This is going to cost her her known as she steps into the unknown. But the Lord's faithful providence was not just working in the heart of her. It was working in the hearts of these people, including Rebecca, who would become wife. And lastly today, the Lord's faithful providence provides her She agrees to go. So they go, beginning in verse 62, they go back to Canaan. The story here is kind of beautiful. Isaac sees that something's going on. He had to have known his father had set this up. So he's curious. Maybe this is his father's servant returning. So there's one riding on the camels that had not been there before. Probably there had not been females going before, now there were, but he can tell the difference. Maybe he can see her from a distance, and she struck him as one who was. She sees him and wants to know who he is. She is assured that this is the one that will be her husband. He gets down, they meet. And again, the narrative is brief, but they get married. He takes her. that even up to this day that many cultures around our world still arrange marriages and move marriages when they stay together. Sometimes we think that our Western model of dating and engagement is the only way two people can really get to know each other and don't get to really love each other if they don't just split up and try again. That doesn't really work very well if you think about our own culture. Our culture much higher divorce rates and historically we've had in cultures where they arrange marriage. And ultimately this wasn't just He wasn't the seed. He wasn't the one who was going to crush the serpent. 
how he can have kids if he didn't have a wife. God providentially assured that not only would he have a wife, he would have a good wife. So God is taking care of things from beginning to end. God's comforting Isaac in this book. God is comforting Abraham in this Not only with providing a family member who can carry forward the family line, but showing that God always keeps his covenant promises. At the end of the day, this text was for Israel. Moses wanted Israel to know had their best interest in mind and his providential purposes would come to pass in exactly like he wanted them to. Even in sort of miraculous ways. But it's not just for Israel. It's for us as well. We need to know about God's providence. Because our confidence is shaken. Because our obedience is often suspended. Because we wonder if God will really because often, we're not very comfortable at all. Often our faith is troubled. But providence brings us to the point that we trust God in confidence. It gives us the ability to obey consistency. It assures us that though the odds seem stacked against us, God will show us favor. And God's providence gives us peace in the midst of storms. You see, the ultimate truth of this passage is that God is bringing about the sovereignty gathered together as children of Abraham. We are the offspring of Abraham, as Paul says in Romans chapter 9. And it shows us that we are children of promise. And a promise has come to pass because God kept his promise to Abraham. And God kept his promise to his servant. And God kept his promise to Rebekah and to Isaac. And ever since, God has been are not 